Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? Good. I just had an eye appointment, and uh, apparently they told me that uh, my eyes are fine. Yay. And for viewers, I can see that, I mean, for listeners, I can see that you have two of them, not one. You're not like a Cyclops or anything, (laughs) which would be so awesome. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, Oh, God bless me. It it would be great if you had glasses, glass uh, instead of glasses. We just had one big one and then two things to go over your ears. Well, they, 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 they always ask me if I want to go ahead and, you know, change my frames or, you know, this, that, the other. And I'm like. Oh, my never- gosh. You are the least fashion-y, fashionista person that I know. <laughs> like, you you would say to them, yes, what frames go well with T-shirts and cargo shorts? <laughs> And I don't mean that as a slam. I like that you're consistently sort of, is that guy a student or is that guy a professor? Yeah, the, 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 the number of times that uh, when people ask me what I do and when I tell them I'm a college professor, they give me the, the once or twice look over and say, really? <laughs> awesome. It's, you know, why, why, um, I honestly, I, we dress in the library, we have a sort of a minimalist dress code in the sense that you're supposed to look, you know, reasonably professional and stuff, but we're allowed to wear jeans and that kind of thing. Um, a lot of people don't, but, but it's, I'm not entirely certain that students care. I don't think they notice and I don't think they care. I don't think they care what you wear. I think they care what you know. So so speaking of things you know yes so we're we're on the last couple of cases for the summer of scotus and this one is a big one right because this is this is about the dreamers this is about daca that's right and there's a whole lot of machinations involved in this right it's not a simple case of yay daca we're done like it's not even like that right there's a whole bunch of layers to this thing yeah there is a whole bunch of layers um and in a, and again, I mean, the, the, the way the, the popular press reports Supreme Court rulings, um, you know, and I understand they have various constraints, they have various imperatives they have to respond to, but this is 120 the, characters. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, this is the, you know, they're tweeting and we don't, we, we have a lot yeah, more time yeah, to handle it. Yeah. You know, and then, and, and they got to fit it at the bottom of the screen. Oh, you know, right. The running, yeah, the, the running, running thingy scroll. at the bo- yeah. scroll at the bottom of the screen. Yep. Yeah. But I mean, the, the case what we're, uh, uh, we're talking about here is uh, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, Homeland Security uh, versus the University of California. Um, and it was a Supreme Court ruling that was handed down um, in the month of June of this year. Um, and as Nia, as you pointed out, um, it concerned uh, uh, a program that was created during the Obama administration. In uh, 2012, the Obama administration um, uh, created the DACA program, which is the acronym for Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals. And basically, it was a program 
um, that would give legal status um, uh, uh, with two-year renewable work permits for those young people who through no decision or fault of their own came to the United States illegally. In other words, so your parents cross the border, they bring you with them because hello, you're their yes. kid and you're seven or eight years old. You don't get to say, oh, is this breaking the law? We probably shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Um, you know. Yes. And then, and then all this, so it allows them a way to legally stay here by showing that they're what working or in college or like there's a set of rules you don't just get to say yeah there was because yeah. i want to there's there's actually things you have to meet criteria you have to meet right that's right it's a pretty it was a pretty standard if you will in terms of how it was set up bureaucratic program right you had to have a job or be enrolled in college you uh had to avoid um uh, committing uh, criminal offenses that led to either a felony or a serious misdemeanor arrest and conviction. It was not a path to citizenship, okay? It was a kind of sort of stopgap measure because the Obama administration wanted Congress to pass what, uh, a proposed uh, legislation that was known as the DREAM Act, thus uh, listeners, Nia's reference to the dreamers, because those who would benefit from the program um, received the label or, if you will, title, the dreamers, okay? Um, now, what was unusual about how the Obama administration created this program was that the Obama administration did not go through um, the informal rulemaking required by the Administrative Procedures Act, okay? Um, they, just, they just went ahead and created it. Am I correct that there are only two rules in the federal government? That there's the Commerce Clause and the <laughs> APA? <laughs> I believe- and Pretty much that's it. There's no other real rules in the, in the American government. Everything I, else is just a guideline. <laughs> I, be I believe other scholars would, would suggest otherwise. Unfortunately for you, Nia, you uh, record a podcast with a constitutional and administrative law scholar, and the two dominant, if you will, pieces of either constitutional law or federal law that affects so much of what I teach, and for that matter, so much of what the federal government does, is actually the Commerce Clause, which is the constitutional basis for so much legislation passed by Congress. But yet, one, once they pass the legislation, then the bureaucrats have to, at minimum, follow the Administrative Procedures Act. Okay. All right. Just saying, for yes. those listeners who want a shortcut to understanding pretty much everything about how the federal government works, learn those two things and you're off to a huge start. Mm -hmm. No doubt about it, right? Okay, so Obama just created this thing. He didn't go through. Yeah, he okay, did Okay, so what we mean by that is he did not put it out for review. He didn't um, did, ask nope, for public opinion. He didn't yep. uh, do any of that. He just, he's just like, poof, there it is. Yeah, and, and the argument made by Obama is one that uh, the Obama administration is one that we're pretty familiar with 
in regards to the current presidential administration, which is, I have this authority and I'm going to use it. Combined with Congress is gridlocked and incapable of doing anything. Yes. Like I mean, that's usually the secondary reason that they say, yes. or and, that's and, the and, primary reason that they say they're going to use the power that they have is because Congress won't do it. Yes. And in, 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 in Nia, you are correct. The Obama administration, particularly during a second term, um, stated a number of times, we're going to go, go it alone because Congress refuses to work with us. Okay. Oh, so they're, they're basically saying, you're making me do this. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Which, the, way, the way kids pass off things to their siblings. My sibling made me do it. Do this. As opposed I to, I have, to. exactly, I have autonomy. Oh, no. Yes. Okay. I didn't, I didn't want to, but they made me. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, you know, mom, when I went ahead and broke, you know, broke one of your cardinal rules, I didn't really want to, but you know, my older sister made me. Right. right? Okay. <laughs> and of course my mom would roll her eyes and say, yeah, that never worked. But nevertheless, many presidents <laughs> say that, right? And in the logic of the president is, Hey, I was elected by the entire country you as a member of the House of Representatives represents a little tiny district, okay, in the middle of nowhere, pick your state. Or you are one of two senators from a state, and by the way, that's one of 50 states. So my mandate is the entire country. Your mandate is to represent a little small pocket of a state or one of 50 states. Less okay. than two percent or less of the population. Population, right? Okay. At maximum, right, for okay. senators. So yeah. yeah. Now this program was created in 2012, um, and since then, according to most estimates, um, you know, uh, well over 650,000. It's somewhere between 650,000 and 700,000. Okay, uh, uh, you know you know, residents, okay, they're considered illegal because they're still, they didn't come here legally, but they are, you know, they, they, they have these permits, okay? Um, it's not a path to citizenship. That still has not been yet worked out. And by the way, if you want to know why a president just can't create a path to citizenship, you know, for, you know, these, for these people, it's because Congress, has that authority. Okay. Oh, Congress. citizenship is determined by the Congress? That's right. Okay. Congress has that authority. It's in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. So it would have to be a law to make this permanent. So this is not a permanent path to citizenship. Now, Donald Trump is running for president in 2016. He makes it very clear that if he's elected president, he's going to rescind DACA. He makes that very clear. Now, some people believe that he wanted to rescind DACA because he's anti-immigrant. He said a number of times, I'm doing this because I want Congress to actually pass legislation, you know, to give them a path to citizenship. Okay. Um and I say, I don't disagree with that. 
I mean, there's something to be said of, all right, well, then I'll make you do something. If you won't do it on your own, then I'll shove you far enough into a corner that you have to do it. I, I'm not sure that I disagree with President Trump on that. Yeah, even even if I don't like necessarily perhaps his motives. Right. Okay. Or how he well, did it. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. There are advocates on all sides of the immigration policy issue Nia, in this country that have long argued this country is overdue, okay, for immigration reform. We've not had significant immigration reform since the Reagan administration. Well, and we need to answer the question for these kids. We need to answer the question yes. of if you're going to be booted, then you need to be booted, booted. And, and come back in a whatever we consider to be a proper way, or we need to make a provision that that allows you a path to citizenship so that you can be done with this and not have it hanging over your head. I mean, I know a lot of people who are in this situation probably worry about it, right? They worry consistently. Oh, Nia, I, got, Nia, I have students who are in this country because of the DACA program, right? And it's every two years, they got to renew the permit, right? They don't know if they're going to be deported if their parents are going to be deported, okay? Um, and if we're going to say to them, yes, you are deported because you came here illegally, then we need to take the official step and say it, okay? Right. And say, and say, say it so that the country can go ahead and consider the fact that, you know, nearly all of these dreamers didn't, didn't do anything wrong on their own. Okay. Well, and a huge, a huge number of them were quite young when they came. Yes. That, so and, when, and they, when somebody says, go back to Mexico, they're like, I don't know Mexico. I don't know anybody in Mexico. I don't speak Spanish. Like, I, I can go somewhere, but it's not going back there in the sense that and, I have and, any real idea about how that, that culture plays out, you know, and, within and, and, its and, country. And as some advocates point out, point out you know, the country needs to go ahead and say to these young people, notwithstanding all the contributions you make, we're still going to deport you. Do you have the guts to say it? Right. Okay. Well, and do you have, I mean, and do you have the kindness to end people's um, uh, in-between status? You know, like, yes. Yes. Just settle it one way or another. So if that's really his reasoning, I'm actually not opposed to that. Make yeah. somebody do something. So Trump comes into office, and while he was running for office, um, uh, there was uh, a related case dealing with uh, another a program that was created for the parents of these children. It's called DAPA, Deferred Action for Parents of Americans in Lawful Permanent Residence. Okay. Now, that was challenged in federal court, and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals held that the DAPA program violated not only the Tenth Amendment, i.e., federalism slash states' rights, but also the APA, the Administrative Procedures Act, okay? 
When that court ruling was appealed to the United States Supreme Court, okay, um, uh, the uh, court could not come to an agreement, okay, on the outcome, okay? And I believe that uh, that Supreme Court case occurred when there were only eight justices because Justice Scalia had died. So that meant that the lower court ruling stood. So Trump wins the presidency. His then attorney general, Jeff Sessions, and for those of you, for those listeners who pay attention to elections in various states, um, Jeff Sessions. Um, uh, Jeffrey, the, Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions. Sessions. <laughs> um, uh, was the attorney general. He gave up his longstanding seat in the Senate representing the state of Alabama. Um, he ran for the Republican Party nomination um, for the uh, election for his old seat this fall, and he just lost the primary against the former football, head football coach of the University of Auburn, uh, Tommy Tuberville, okay? Um, so Jeff Sessions, who once was uh, a part of the Trump administration inner circle, now looks like he won't have any government job um, in the foreseeable future. Yes, it was that Jeff Sessions. Sessions rules or issues in a, or makes a, a, a uh, a decision. He comes out and says that based on the logic of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in the DAPA case, then DACA also has to be both unconstitutional and illegal. The Department of Homeland Security takes that finding by the Attorney General and says, we are rescinding DACA but the Department of Homeland Security doesn't immediately go through notice and comment. And that gets challenged by various interest groups, but also, okay, the University of California, because the University of California has a, a pretty significant number of students enrolled in their various uh, uh, universities who are, you know, uh, uh, recipients of the DACA program. So, okay. and the University uh, of California, just as a side note um, for listeners who may not know this, is the largest university um, consortium system. system in the country. In yes. the country, like yeah. by far. It has yeah. by number of schools, but also number of students. It's just a huge, huge, yes. huge program. So when the University of California decides a thing, it reverberates through other universities all over the nation because of the because of the sheer size of it. It's kind of like um, when Texas adopts a textbook for its middle school. There are more kids in middle school in Texas than in any other state except California. So it, it tends to be that then everybody else adopts that textbook too. It's a similar idea. These huge systems can have an effect on the entire nation. Yeah, because 
a lot of other university systems in a lot of other states, okay, are like, hey, if this is what California is doing for all of its students, then perhaps we ought to go ahead and look at doing the exact same thing, okay? Now, the University of California's challenge was basically twofold. One, they argued that the Department of Homeland Security and the Trump administration um, acted in an arbitrary and capricious manner. <laughs> and for you, uh, for you faithful listeners, in a previous podcast, we talked about the arbitrary and capricious standard um, that's part of the APA. Yes, we're the thinking APA. about getting merch for that. That's right. Yeah, getting some good swag that you guys can order <laughs> online. Okay. We'll figure that out at some point. <laughs> yes, right? You know, because, you know, and by the way, these would be proceeds that would not go into our pocket. Right. Okay? That would definitely go back into the library yes. and poli sci departments. departments. Yeah, right. Okay. But, but basically, the argument here was because the Department of Homeland Security and the Trump administration didn't follow, at least immediately, the APA, the decision to rescind DACA was arbitrary and capricious. The second argument that the University of California made was the constitutional one, which, by the way, the Supreme Court did not focus on when they ultimately took the case. And that was the rescission of DACA uh, would, re uh, would violate the Constitution's, if you will, value or liberty of equal protection under the law, okay? That these students were, would be treated differently simply because, okay, they came to the country, you know, in an illegal manner. The court didn't focus on that, okay? Is that Amendment 14th? Yes, okay. which interestingly enough, they were actually, uh, the University of California was arguing applied to the federal government via the Fifth Amendment's due process clause, <laughs> okay? It's a kind of sort of uh, uh, the converse of what has been historically argued, okay, about how the 14th Amendment actually applies the rest of the Bill of Rights to the states, <laughs> Um, but nevertheless, the court does it. The, the court followed what's known as the rule of strict necessity. Why decide a case on constitutional grounds when you can decide it on statutory grounds? Okay, because when when the court rules on uh, a, a case on constitutional grounds, it makes it so much more difficult to overturn what the court did because the court is the last word on constitutional interpretation. If you rule it on statutory grounds, you basically leave it to the political branches to say, hey, we disagree with you, you being the court, and thus we're gonna change the law. It's easier to change a law than it is to change the constitution. By about 900%. <laughs> yes, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. You, know, there, you know, one of the reasons why we've only had 27 amendments to the U.S. Constitution is that the process is so darn difficult. Well, and the first 10 were zipped. I mean, like what we've really yes. had are 17, 17 amendments to the Constitution. Yeah, and those had... 17 have taken 250 years. Like it's 220 yes. years. But still, I mean, it's yes. a, you know. The so first the 10 were easy peasy, but after that, man, it, it took on a, 
Yeah, the first 10 were decided by the first Congress in our country's history. It's taken yeah. the subsequent, you know, 200 <laughs> plus years for the remaining 17. And by the way, we haven't had an amendment approved since, you know, the early 1990s. So, you know. And we, yeah. you and I had planned to talk about that at some point in future, in a future podcast, sort of the, 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 why we don't change the constitution more often and, yes. and what that means for us as a country. But in this particular instance, they said, rather than going out and changing the constitution, you could just apply APA properly and, yes. and do this and do what you want to do. That's right, because Congress has delegated huge amounts of legislative authority to the executive branch, okay, to control immigration. We know this, right? And it's not just Trump, it's not just Obama, okay? Okay, presidents have historically had huge amounts of, you know, legislative authority in the you know, policy area of immigration delegated, okay, to the executive branch. We know this, right? Well, and neither Trump nor Obama is responsible for DHS. That was President George Bush. That's right. Uh, the second, okay. the second George yeah. Bush. Yeah. Uh, 43. Uh, yeah, 43. Um, and again. And, and that was post 9-11. I mean, there's, there are reasons that that all came together as one organization. Yeah, and and in and, and one of the subunits, as you well know, Nia, because one of your master's degrees is in uh, Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness, um, one of the units of the Department of Homeland Security is ICE, Immigration ICE. and Customs. Yes, Immigration. ICE, ICE baby. Yes, Immigration <laughs> and Customs Enforcement, right? Right. And you also know this, and, and, and scholars pointed this out, when the agency was being created or contemplated. Homeland Security, the Department of Homeland Security, has huge amounts of legislative authority delegated to it. Okay. Oh, the USA Patriot Act basically said, here, do whatever you want. Yes. Right? And here's a whole bunch of money to do it with. Like, there yes. was, there's amazing levels of things in there that people, people really don't, I think, know about. We've talked about FISA courts and we've talked about other things um, in the past and we can go into more depth at some point if somebody really wants us to do that. But it's it, taking a deep dive into DHS, you will suddenly realize they have enormous power. They have yes. enormous influence over not just federal federal agencies, but state agencies. Part of what the fight with the sanctuary city issue comes back to all of that as well. And, and, so yeah, there's a huge, um, uh, a lot of power and a lot of uh, uh, legislative authority there. But so, but that's not what the court, the court found that if you just, is this another one of those cases where the court basically said to Donald Trump, if you would just hire lawyers that understood the APA you could be doing all kinds of stuff that you keep trying to do and not being successful. Yes. You okay. would think that this message would take after a while. Yeah. You know, Hey, we're three and a half years into his, you know, <laughs> <laughs> his term as president and the court still is reminding him. I mean, and the Supreme court's not the only federal court that has said this to the Trump administration, but you're right. 
John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts joined the four liberals and said the Trump administration did act in an arbitrary and capricious manner because they didn't follow APA. And basically what he's saying there is two wrongs don't make a right. Like just That's because right. Obama did, uh, the Obama administration did that doesn't mean you get to do that too. That's right. Okay. Right. Because you now have 670,000 people who are, who have grown to rely on DACA to take that away from them you have to follow the Administrative Procedures Act. Now, what's interesting to note here, and we can discuss this a little bit further in regards to implications, Robert's majority opinion, and by the way, even those in the dissent, particularly those in the dissent, but you know, four out of the five justices in the majority agreed with Robert's point that Trump could rescind DACA. Okay. So yeah, this was a reprieve. This was not a, yeah, this was, this, this was not a, you get to stay in it and the program can never go away. No, what Robert said was the program could have been rescinded if the Trump administration had followed the Administrative Procedures Act. Which basically gives them, as he's done before in other rulings this summer, gives them sort of a roadmap of, if you do it properly, this is, this is how uh, you can do it, and it would stand up constitutionally. That's, yeah, well, and, and, but also stand up or, legally. Or statutorily, yeah. I, I guess. Yeah, statutorily, more, you, know, more, you know, constitutionally, I mean. They didn't answer it, that question. You no, they didn't said answer they didn't that answer question. that question, I mean, so it, I shouldn't have, yeah, that was but, me I mean, misspeaking. No, but no, you raise a larger point here is, which is, you know, there are some justices on the, uh, on the current Supreme Court who would like to tackle the issue of whether or not Congress can delegate so much authority to the executive branch, largely unchecked. But Roberts didn't, Roberts didn't go there, right? Am I guessing that one of those justices is Alito? Uh, basically, it's the other four conservatives. Yeah, because I can see Alito saying, okay, you know what, this is a mess and you, we need to figure it out and we just need to, to rule constitutionally and tell yeah. people how to do it and how to do it properly. Yeah, I mean, because their logic is uh, when Congress delegates huge amounts of authority to the executive branch, but with very few guidelines on how that authority should be exercised, that violates the non-delegation principle, i.e. separation of powers. Because in the Constitution, it doesn't say the executive branch gets to go ahead and make regulations, okay, which have the effect of law. The only law-making body in our federal Constitution, according to at least four of the justices, is Congress. I agree with that. Okay. I mean, they're the representatives of the people. Of the, the theory people. Is, that, is that they make the laws that govern the people who represent, like, who they represent. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, so I, I would, I'm, I would be in line with that, although I'm not in line with some of the other stuff they've said. So I don't know where I would fall. I would be John Roberts if I were on the, if I were on the Supreme Court, because he goes with his heart, like he goes, not, oh, with, yeah. his heart, I mean, not he, with his heart. That's not accurate because it's not an emotional it, decision. He goes with where he really thinks the law 
lands like he looks at what he thinks the principle of the law is and he says you know i'm gonna say that like he voted with the liberals in this particular instance not because he has the liberal position but because he looked at the letter of the law and said you didn't do it right if, if you yeah, had done it right we would be upholding it yeah as a as a number of commentators about this case pointed out the court, the majority's ruling in this case is a very narrow technical ruling. Okay. It basically went ahead and said, yes, Mr. President, you have the authority to rescind DACA if that's what you choose to do. But if you choose to do that, you have to follow the rules. And the right. rules are laid out in the Administrative Procedures Act. Okay. Can I just comment? that it seems a lot like the Supreme Court rolls up a newspaper and bats somebody across the face with it. Yes. Sometimes it's the executive, sometimes, sometimes it's the it's Congress, sometimes, sometimes it's, it's a state. state. Yes. Like, hey, Georgia, come here. You know, like, like they did this summer earlier with the annotations. Like, there's all these, they just, it's like they keep a rolled up newspaper on the bench and they say, all right, who are we going to smack across the face with this thing? But it also, this is also another one of those giveth, taketh away things yes. that we've talked about before. Because right now, those kids are safe. Right now. Yes. But if, if July, I mean, uh, if August 1st, the president put in the federal register that he wanted to get rid of DACA and he had an explanation and he, you know, explained why he wanted to do that and gave a comment period, which I think is 30 days. 30 days. And as early as September 1st, it could be done. Sure. If they I mean, were organized and got it and got it in. According to administrative law scholars, Nia, uh, typically informal rulemaking, notice and comment rulemaking takes about a year and a half. Okay, takes about a year and a half. Is that because okay. it takes a while to write the regulation to start with? You, you know, you got to do the research. You got to demonstrate that, you know, you just didn't come up with it over the weekend. Okay, <laughs> like, like I would do. Okay. okay. Okay, that you, you know, you vetted it with the, the, the agencies that have, you know, substantive authority. Okay. Um, you looked at uh, its feasibility. You looked at the cost. You looked at yeah, all that right. stuff. Because there's another federal law that says the Office of Management and Budget has to do a cost-benefit analysis of every proposed regulation, okay, that affects so many people, okay. Oh, so even if you're rescinding one, you still have yes. to do a CBO report? Yes. Uh, no, CBO. No, an, an OMB report, cost-benefit analysis, right? Cost-benefit okay. analysis, but again, Federal agencies know how to do these things. These are checking boxes, right? So you do all of that, then you issue the proposed rule in the Federal Register. And in a previous podcast episode, we talked about what that's like, right? You give the uh, interested parties 30 days to respond. Um, and they, and everybody that responds could dislike the proposed rule. And you can say, I'm sorry, I can't hear you over the sound of me doing it anyway. That's right. Because you don't have to take their advice. You just have to ask for their advice. Their advice. That's right. Thank you for sharing, right? 
you know, how nice that you have feelings. Moving on. Yeah, moving on, right? And it takes, basically, you know, on average, it takes about a year and a half, right? So, you know, theoretically, if the Trump administration wanted to go ahead and check all the boxes, you know, and, and, you know, the the infamous uh, acronym for bureaucrats, CYA. Yes. Cover, Cover your but right <laughs> okay but you know you do that okay one this could have already been done but two let's say trump um uh issues uh a proposed regular okay let's say hypothetically donald trump wins a second term um this november okay january he issues a proposed rule rescinding daca right because he, he would have had six to seven months since the Supreme Court ruling to already study the issue. Right. Give it 30 days. At some point in February, the comment period ends. A month later, you go ahead and say, here is the final regulation rescinding the DACA program. Okay. And even with the subsequent court challenges to it, okay, by the end of 2021, okay, DACA could be rescinded. That's the scary thought for DACA recipients. Right. That's the scary thought, right? The happy thought is that the Trump administration does not seem to have gotten itself together on these issues previously. It seems like they take a shot, they don't get it, and then they kind of give up and move on to the next thing. And that I'm going to venture an opinion has to do with lack of experience. A huge number of them lack the experience to, to say, Oh, there's a way we do this. And then when we do it that way, we're sort of, we're sort of Teflon, right? We can, we can actually do what we want to do. And that is in part because a huge number of the people in, in Donald Trump's administration are new to Working in government. Working in government. A lot of it, uh, Jeff Sessions aside, who had been in government since r- dinosaurs roamed the earth. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, him aside, very few of them, there have been a few, there are a few secretaries that have, that have been in government for a long time. But generally speaking, he has chosen people from the private sector. And this well, is one of those instances where an insider to- would have been helpful. There are, his three, cause. there are three set of phenomenon here um, that probably should give quite a bit of hope to DACA recipients. One you just mentioned, uh, President Trump has picked uh, a significant, significant number of non-government, ex, you know, people with very little government experience. Two, even when he's picked those individuals for cabinet positions, um, it appears as though he, um, with some regularity, ignores them. Okay. Oh, that's true. Okay. Okay. And then third, he's done something that you and I've talked about that a large number of public administration scholars have identified. He has hollow, hollowed out the federal bureaucracy. There are so many positions middle and upper management positions, people who would be tasked with implementing, (laughs) okay, uh, regulations, those positions are vacant. 
they are vacant. And because they are, um, sure, he can go ahead and claim the federal bureaucracy is the smallest it's been in decades. But the problem is, in terms of implementing his policy choices, there just aren't people there to go ahead and implement them. They're just not. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask a separate question, but it's a follow-up to this idea. So let's just say that President Trump's administration begins the work now. Yes. And, and they actually manage to get something in the Federal Register um, in late November. Okay. Let's just pretend. Okay. And they haven't won the election. Can the new... Can the new administration remove yes. something from comment or can they? Okay. Yes. Yep. Yes, they can. Yep. Okay. Yep. So you have no way of affecting that once you're post your presidency. That is correct. Other than to stand up and publicly say things, which is yeah. what ex-presidents do sometimes. Um, although they don't seem to do that as much. I mean, like, they don't seem to do that hugely. They don't seem to be, they seem as a group to not be people who um, speak negatively against the current occupant That's of the White House. That does seem to be the tradition. It will be interesting to see what Donald Trump does, Trump does. post his presidency whenever that is whether that's in 2020 or 2024 it will be interesting to see if he follows that sort of tradition of for the most part you stay out of things that the current president is dealing you don't venture opinions um yeah because for most, the most part yeah because most former presidents understand how difficult the job is and they understand that whoever is the next occupant doesn't need okay um former presidents <laughs> nagging or making fun or or yes. doing anything other than being silently supportive of them as a person that's right yep. right even if you're opposite what they believe in in platform they're still a person yep. and they're still yep. under an enormous stress it's it's interesting when they do speak out because it is so rare Yes. Um, okay, so so where does it take us with DACA? Like, so right now, if you were a DACA recipient, you're okay. You're you just have to make sure your two-year paperwork mark is filled out. Yes. And and you can continue to go to school, have your job, stay in the United States. What happened with the parents? Uh, well, right now with the parents, um, the Trump administration. Um, if they had probably more money and more staff, could be send could be deporting many more of them um, out of the country. Okay, so it's a it's a, at this point a staffing and financial issue. Yes. Yeah. Um, and again, this is one of those times where how Trump is treated, the bureaucracy, and how Trump has negotiated with Congress in regards to the budget, has actually impacted his ability to probably affect the kind of policy change that he's wanted. Yep. Um, I think that it must be very hard for Donald Trump to adjust to the idea, I, I, he hasn't seemed to adjust to it yet, that being a CEO is very different, very, very different than being the president. 
Yes. Um, just because you say you want something as a president doesn't make it happen. Um, you're better off in that instance being, oh, I don't know, Kim Kardashian than you are being the president. If you want your <laughs> word to just carry, you know, just carry you through kind of thing. Um, so I think he's, but he's so used to being sort of the, the, I say a thing and somebody makes it happen that I think maybe it was, it's been hard for him to adjust not only to the fact that you don't get to just say a thing and it, and it magically happens, but also that the sheer volume of people that it takes to run something as large as the federal government. And, and this goes to the idea too of, um, there are many people in this country, and it's not just one side or the other of the political spectrum, but on both sides of the spectrum, who would like to see a smaller, more effective government. And if you were going to have that, you would need to be, it would need to be not in any way arbitrary about which positions you didn't fill. Like you would have to really sit down and focus on, okay, if yes. I want the work of DHS to get done, who do I absolutely have to have in those jobs? And I'm not entirely sure that that happened either. Oh no. Because understanding that bureaucracy takes a long time. Like that's a years long. Yeah. I'm still, I've been studying government documents and, and government stuff for 28 years. And I still discover agencies, agencies where I say, what the heck is that? And I, and then I realize it's, you know, six people in this grouping that do this thing. And if they don't do this thing, then a bunch of other people can't do their jobs. And if I've devoted that much time and effort to it, and I'm still behind, like, there's no way for somebody who's not been in government who gets elected president is going to have a steep learning curve. Yes. 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 I mean, that's, I mean, I mean and, and I then, have sympathy for that because that's hard. That's a really the, hard. Yeah. The, the, there are a couple of phenomenon that uh, your uh, comment kind of sort of touches upon one, you know, people who become presidents who have not worked in government previously um, uh, struggle with the fact that if they want to get major policy change written into law, they can, they have to convince Congress to do it. Okay. And that's difficult. Okay. Even if Congress was not polarized, like it has been over the last two to three decades, that's still difficult. But right. then second, you talked about the bureaucracy, right? Um, and you know, the, the, the bureaucracy is, 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 you know, I've been studying public administration, you know, for, you know, a couple of decades now. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, you and I have talked about this book before, and I, and I encourage readers uh, to, to pick it up if you can. Um, and it's, it's not a long book, and it's written by a pretty well-known former reporter, Michael Lewis. It's called The Fifth Risk. And he, in so much of the book is is about the Trump administration's transition from the campaign to actually taking over the executive branch. And even my students, okay, many of whom are public administration, you know, students, you know, their concentration is public administration, are just, just mesmerized. They're just awed, okay by what they end up learning about the federal bureaucracy in that book. You know, like, so for instance, 
the Department of Commerce, okay, would seemingly be about, okay, you know, trade, right? You know, oh, there's so much under the commerce. Okay, but exactly, Nia, right? You know, so for instance, you know, the, the National Weather Service is part of the Department of Commerce. Right. Okay. Measures, weights and measures is part okay. of commerce, commerce, which has almost nothing to do with commerce now because we hardly ever sell anything by, by you know, weights and measures, but measures. That's, that's the census is under commerce. The commerce department, right? I mean, and, and many of my students are like, what the heck is the census? Okay, that's like, well, you know, hey, that's where we put it, right? right. 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 It, made, it made sense at one point, right? <laughs> okay, you know, the, the federal government's largest loan program is actually in the Department of Agriculture. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. In students yeah, people think it's Fannie Mae and Freddie Mae and, you know, it's like yep. housing and student loans. I'm like, oh, no, it's farm loans. It's farm yep. subsidies. And, and small business, mm-hmm. right? And they're just like, what the heck's that got to do with that? <laughs> the Department of Agriculture, okay, is the big, biggest lender in the United States, right? Okay, and, and, and if my students who are interested in this stuff are just blown away, imagine if you are somebody who's never worked in government before, and Donald Trump had never worked in government, all of a sudden he becomes president, okay, and he's getting a daily briefing where somebody says, hey, Mr. President, what do we want to do about the Small Business Administration's loan program? He's just like, huh? What? What? Well, I think we should keep that. (laughs) Sir, that's not really what I was asking. I mean, like, well, and then there's the whole idea of competing interests. Like, the entire government is competing interests. Yes. The, The loans that are given in ag aren't given in some other department, right? So they're not given in energy. They're not given in whatever else. So you have to decide when you're, when the budget isn't just about, oh, well, these people need a couple trillion dollars, so I'll just throw it their way. It's all of taking all of those competing interests into account and saying, well, I want to balance this with this, and I want to give a certain amount of energy loans and a certain amount of ag loans and a certain amount of, you know, and then there's things like, in the, con- in, the, in the Constitution where it says, and thou shalt have a census, and it doesn't give any more information than that, right? It doesn't tell you how you're supposed to do it, how much it's supposed to cost, what kind of information you're supposed to gather. So all of that's competing interests. And we saw earlier with the court case uh, about whether to have the citizenship question. question. Like yeah, last yeah, There's previous huge competing interests yeah. in that. And, yep. and to, for a person who's, and I'm not trying to be ugly, because it's not just Donald Trump. Every CEO, every CEO is self-interested first. Sure, like that's, because, that's how you get to be a CEO. Yeah, you because your job be is to go ahead and make, yeah, your job as CEO of a corporation is to make shareholders a whole bunch of money, right? But, but I, I would say that it's to look after yourself first. How did you get to be CEO? Okay, you, I mean, fair enough. You, I mean, had to, yeah. you had to put your own personal interest before everybody else. And he's used to doing that. So is Jeff Bezos. So, is, so was Steve Jobs. So is, you know, any, well, Lee Iacocca, if we want to go back a billion years. Um, like, that's, that's a thing that's natural to people who rise to that position. 
And then somebody says to them, oh, well, if you're president, you're, you put yourself last. Yes. Because the American people have to come first. And talk about a gear shift. Like, that's a really hard, I would think it would be a really hard gear shift to make. And especially if the people you've hired around you are similar to you. They are, their, their interests have a lot to do with their own personal um, achievement. I think that would also be difficult as well. And I think that's one of the reasons he struggled with people who have long served in the government, whose worldview is no, the people come first or the bet, you know, we got to follow this process. Okay. Um, which may not necessarily lead to the outcome, um, the end goal that you want. Right. So, you know, to your comment a few minutes, uh, a few minutes ago, of how people on both sides of the political aisle frequently struggle with this. You know, I have students, okay, who are activist, progressive, liberal, right? And they want change now. And then I remind them, you know, kind of sort of like in this podcast where I go ahead and weird things up, right? Complicate <laughs> things, right? I'm like, okay, but you, you understand you have to go through this process. And they're just like, yeah, but, and I'm like, yeah, but there's no but here, right? Right, because if you, if we run on feelings only and yours isn't the loudest voice in the room, are you going to appreciate being under someone else's worldview? That's right. right. Like the whole point of that is to protect the minority. It's to protect the small shouty voice that's saying, no, no, my, my needs aren't being met, Right. And if, and if you start deciding by the volume of the voice. Or the immediacy. Okay. I mean, I mean the, the reason why the Administrative Procedures Act okay, has the, the, this process that we've described in this episode is to avoid arbitrary and capricious behavior. Right. You don't want to be subject to arbitrary and capricious behavior. Right? No. Okay. You don't. No. No, Anybody nobody. who's ever been ruled by a toddler... <laughs> doesn't like remember Mackenzie's toddler years where you were like oh at some point I'm going to be able to say no and she's not going to burst into a screaming fit of tears and <laughs> sobbing right like yes but you remember those days when you were yes. like give it to her give it to her whatever it is so she will stop screaming yes you don't want to be ruled by a toddler you want to no. be ruled by a person who has reason and who has and who, whether you disagree with their argument or not, has actually has an argument and can yes. say, you know, like, I don't, I don't want to see these kids thrown out of the United States. I will state openly for the record, I don't think it was their fault they were brought here. And I think that they need to be given a path to citizenship in some way. I'm not saying that it should be. Wholeheartedly. I don't think that it should be just a magic wand. I mean, I think they should have to have a clean record. They like the things they have now. They should have to have a job or be in college, right? Like they should be productive members of society. But, but beyond that, I say, yes, we should come up with something. And so if that really is the motivation, I'm in. I'm in with Donald Trump. I'm in with saying, okay, if the way I have to do this, if the way I have to force your hand is to scare the snot out of people and say, in six months, this is going away, Congress, you've got six months to fix it, which is what I hope he would do. I would hope that they would say, okay, we've rescinded it, but we're giving, 
we're giving Congress six months before we actually start throwing people out of the country to get together yes. and yeah. figure something out. I would be totally behind that because I think that that's a, a good legal way to do it that gives everybody a, a voice at the table. Um, and yeah, I, no, I don't want somebody to just be able to say poof. And then the next day, this ground that I've thought that I was standing on no longer exists uh, because that scares me for groups like, like this group of people, but it also scares me for groups like that aren't yes. vulnerable, but could be made vulnerable by someone's lunacy. Well, or, or another president that comes in and says, I'm going to emphasize this instead of that in immigration policy, right? I mean, you could have a president that comes in and says, okay, I'm going to go ahead and give a, uh, uh, a permit program for people with certain job skills that we don't have enough of in our native population, but everybody else has to get deported, huh? Right? Oh, yeah. See, no, that would be terrible. Okay, but that's the basis of one of our visa programs, right? Okay, do you have, do you have a job skill, okay, that this administration believes is important to our economy? Right, but what would, I don't mind if we have that up front, but if what we do two years later is say, yeah, no longer we need those skills, and so you have to go away. Now we're going to bring in people with a different set of skills. Okay, but again, under current immigration law, the authority to make those determinations, it rests with the executive branch. And that can vary depending on who's in the White House. Which is why we need the APA. <laughs> yeah, that's why we need the APA. And also, maybe, you know, members of Congress should get off their duffs and actually pass, okay, meaningful immigration law that says these are our priorities. Oh, by the way, in the 21st century, what worked right. in the 20th century doesn't seemingly, it doesn't seemingly work anymore in regards to immigration policy. So, you know, we might want to update this because nobody believes that immigration is going to go away as a policy problem. Right. And us That's not addressing it for 40 years is pretending that the world is not the place that it is now. Yeah, right? Okay. So it's, you know, it's the dreamers. It's the dreamers' parents, right? It, it's the, 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 the acknowledgement that, you know, hey, our borders, okay, might need to be addressed. I don't know if a, the wall is the appropriate way, but, you know, do we, are we concerned? Right. Okay. Um, but right now, okay, everybody's locked into their position. They're not coming to the table to negotiate. So we are left with, well, whoever wins the presidency gets to go ahead and decide the fate of, as in the, the case of DHS versus the University of California, 670,000 people. I don't know about you, but that's a lot of people. Yeah, that's a lot of people. Okay. I, I'm not interested in us, in us just arbitrarily doing something yes. to those people. I would like there to be a systematic, something that they understand and something that we understand. Like, I don't know. I would like to, for us to not have that be arbitrary and capricious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Turns out me and John Roberts, we're right in there together in that I mean, sense. And, 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 you know, and, and I, 
and, and I have students, okay, where I'm, I'm like, you know, I don't know what to tell them because they're just like, what do you think is going to happen? I'm like, I don't know, right? right? Okay. And, and, and all I want to do is be able to go ahead and tell them, hey, guys, this is the law. This is the process. This is what you can expect, right? Um, it kind of sort of touches upon, uh, you know, another podcast episode that's going to be released uh, either next week in a couple of weeks, okay? Um, we're at a point to where this is almost the definition of lawlessness. Right. It will, de- it will depend on who's president. Yeah, no, we need, yeah, to, I, we need to stop that. that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not comfortable with that either because it it's so arbitrary. It will change from president to president to president. president right? And okay. we need to fix it. And, and I understand that's the basis of so much of the modern administrative state. But as somebody who teaches it, okay, I'm not comfortable with it. Okay. Um, well, and, it, 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 yeah. and not having predictability is yeah, I mean, bad for a society. Like it's it, just it, bad for us. Yes. Okay. I mean, the, the, the law should be able to, uh, 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 if you will, encourage uh, reliance. Right. Can you rely on what is the meaning of X, right? And I know that sounds really boring, okay, <laughs> really, but, you know, hey. Oh, man, you know what we sound like? We sound like old people. You kids get off my lawn. <laughs> like, we want, we want predictability. We want reliance. We want it to be. But, but you know, but, those but, values but, help everybody. But, 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 Nia, think about all the students that we work with, okay, who's, whose performance, whose ability to do good work is affected when, you know, other parts of their life they can't rely on. Right. When they're not secure. Homeless students truly struggle in college to do anything. Yes. Because they're so stressed about finding a place to sleep that's safe. And that that they're worried about whether or not one of their, you know, family members is going to get deported. Right? Yeah. Yeah, there are some real... That, that's not good, right? right? And we should aspire to be better as a society, okay? And I don't know what the answer is to the you know, rather complicated large immigration problem, but what's going on right now okay, isn't good, okay? And whether or not John Roberts, okay, in a narrow majority of the court went ahead and, you know, slapped Donald Trump on the nose with the newspaper, okay, that isn't the way to go ahead and run okay, a significant federal government program. Right. It just isn't, okay? Well, and it's not tenable. It's got to be no. handled at some point. You can only no. run so far before you've run around in a full circle. Yes. Like, yeah. Uh, well, normally we end on a happy note and we're not this time. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. Um, it's complicated. It's nuanced. It's hard. Uh, what we would encourage is that um, if you have commentary about this, make it to your senators, make it to your representatives. Representatives. Um, try to try to reach out and say, "Hey, let's get let's get working on this. This thing is important. Um, it may not directly affect anybody in your life, but it probably indirectly does. So we would encourage you to uh, to get involved if you have feelings on this. Yes. Thank you so much for talking to me about this, Augie. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm glad we did. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. 
Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU libraries. Special thanks to the workshop for technical assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.